Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, whether you're new to Stoicism or if you've been around for quite some time, you'll definitely have heard of this amazing guest who we have on today, uh, none other than John Sellers. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about John before we jump into the interview, but I, I tell you, you've got a great conversation coming up. I was so grateful that I was able to talk to uh, talk to John, and uh, he was so generous with his time. And the first time through, we couldn't do it because of a few technical issues, but the second time through, we had a wonderful conversation. But I'll tell you a little bit about John. So John Sellers, he is a lecturer in philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London. Uh, He's the author of a number of books on Stoicism, including The Art of Stoicism, which was published in 2003, uh, Stoicism, which was published in 2006, and his most recent book, which you can actually get right now, it's just been released in 2019, Lessons in Stoicism. Uh, So he's also one of the founding members of the Modern Stoicism Group, uh, the organization that runs Stoic Week and Stoicon. So uh, an absolute powerhouse in the Stoic community and such a knowledgeable person. I'm so grateful that he came on the show and um, jump on the links in the show notes as well. You can head to his website, you can head to his Twitter and find out where you can buy all of his books as well. And I recommend that you do that. Absolutely. Uh, But without any further ado, I present to you, John Sellers. Okay, so here we are with none other than John Sellers. Now, a lot of people in the Stoic community, uh, John, would would know of you. They've obviously read what you've put out there and um, they've seen your speeches as well and your lectures. And, um, you know, I just want to give you the opportunity, seeing as you've never been on the podcast before, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you do and, uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on. So I... Um teach philosophy at Royal Holloway, which is part of the University of London. I teach mainly ancient philosophy, so Stoicism, but also Plato and Aristotle. And this year I'm teaching some medieval philosophy as well. So Mm. that's my day job. Um, I wrote my PhD on Stoicism um, many years ago now. Um, And um, I focused on the very practical side of of Stoicism then. So it's been something that I've been interested in for a very long time. Mm. And in fact, my PhD examiner was Christopher Gill, who I've subsequently collaborated with for Stoic Week and and the like. So um, that's a fairly long-standing relationship as as well. Mm. So um, yeah, and then over the last 20 years or so, a couple of books on stoicism have come out along the way and then over the last seven or eight years we've we've had this whole modern stoicism thing which has been really quite amazing i mean i don't Mm. think any of us expected that it would take off in the way that it has um one thing that i find really surprising is the way in which uh, i meet people say journalists or publishers or whoever and they say oh yes stoicism is going to be the next big thing right as if Mm. it's only just started um, yeah. And then other people you meet and they'll say, well, is this a fad? Is it over yet? 
And so I think that's quite interesting that people don't really know whether this is just a very brief moment or whether this is in fact the beginning of something that could become a lot bigger. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. It's, it's a kind of a weird place that we're in right now, right? It's like, who knows what's going to happen. And um, I mean, I would hope that the side of stoicism that says, you know, only focus on what you can control, don't go out there and try to change people's opinions, isn't stopping us from sharing this with as many people as possible and moving the philosophy forward and, and getting it out to as many people as possible. Yeah, I'd, I'd hope that that isn't seeping into the general vibe of stoicism and, and, and leading it to not reaching as many people. But why do you think that it's had such a big impact lately in society? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult one to, to answer as well. In fact, um, people ask it me all the time, and I'm increasingly thinking that we should start to do some proper research on this. I mm. mean, through modern stoicism and through events that I, I go to, and, and, and you, you and others can do this too, we should start to ask people, why is it that you got interested in stoicism? And start yeah. to get a sense of what all the answers are. I mean, my own take on it is that for people in a... In, in, in Western, broadly secular societies, there's just a sense that people are looking for some kind of set of values, some kind of set of, of um, some sort of life guidance, really, right? Mm. Something that, that can give them some kind of structure, some sort of framework to how to live their lives if they're no longer committed to one of the kind of big organized religions. Because yeah. religion kind of served that role. It gave you a set of beliefs, a set of values, but also all sorts of practical advice and guidance, right? I mean, particularly, say, in Catholicism, um, but also in, in you know, many other religions too. I mean, Islam would be another example. You've got the kind of, you know, set daily readings, set mm. prayers, constant reminders of your values and the things you ought to be prioritizing. Um, and in a, secular, in a secular society, you don't have that kind of framework of, of, of ethical mm. guidance. So I think it may be that some people are looking for that. Yeah. Um, I don't think that works as a, as a total explanation because in, I've encountered lots of people coming from a Christian tradition, from a Muslim tradition, people very interested in Buddhism, say. Um, and uh, even um, we've had some people um, from the Sikh religion come to our event saying mm. we're really interested in Stoicism because it connects with our our. Uh, the values in our religion so that can't explain everyone <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so um i'm not sure if there's going to be one answer that will, will work in, in every case but i mean that's my yeah. take on it but there's there's even there's even the aspect of you know it's a very kind of flexible philosophy right it's it's not a, it's not even necessarily um the way i kind of see it is it's a framework for how to think effectively right and how to live effectively and so in that way, you can kind of, it's kind of like a chameleon philosophy, really. Like you can, you can place it over the top of your Christianity and say, yes, yeah. I am a Christian, but at the same time, I follow many Stoic principles or, um, you know, you can place it at, like, I know that uh, I just spoke with Kai Whiting and, um, you know, he uses uh, traditions from the, the Islamic culture um, alongside his stoicism as a practice in stoicism. Like, uh, and, and so there's, there's so many ways that you can fit it into your life. Right. And, and that kind of makes it appealing to, to as many people as possible, really. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and people will take different things from it as well. So, mm. I mean, that's the other thing that's quite striking about this revival of interest in stoicism that 
there are a number of different sort of subcultures where people are, are drawing on different elements. Some people are, are really stressing the environmentalism. Some people are really stressing the um, sort of deal with adversity side of things. Mm. Um, so um, people are finding very different things um, to take away from it. Um, I had a really interesting discussion with someone um, at work a, a month or two back. Um, and she said that the thing that really struck her about stoicism was the idea that some things aren't in your control and as mm. a consequence it's not your fault right yeah. um your life isn't your fault yeah um things will just happen to you and they're not down to you and she found that really refreshing um in contrast to the kind of story that she's constantly fed you if you're not successful and rich and happy it's all down to you right mm. it's it's all, you should be able to achieve all of these things. And if you don't, it's because you've not worked hard enough. You've not given it your all. Um, and it's all your fault if you haven't got what you want. As a kind of sort of, you know, one of the sort of um, implicit ideas that we're fed through sort of, you know, Western mm. capitalism, right? If you just try hard enough, you'll succeed. And the thought that, you know, it's not all your fault because it's all out of your control. Um, mm. you're just this finite being with a limited amount of control over the external world and you can do your best um, but of course you're not going to be able to control these vast forces that are shaping your life mm. but the one thing you can control is is your attitude towards it she found that incredibly um, liberating yeah and, and, and you know on that note I think that, that one of the more powerful aspects of stoicism is that it doesn't even it doesn't it's not even necessarily that it it says that you can't achieve uh, this level of, of success. It's kind of that it says, what is the success that you're chasing, right? It's like, if, if you're chasing the society's version of success, the nice house, nice car, you know, um, suburban lifestyle, have whatever you want, like, of course, that's outside of your control, like, ultimately, right? But, but I love that the, what the Stoics do is they say, okay, your real home is right here. Your real home is in your mind and your ability to reason, your ability to make virtuous decisions. And you can make virtuous decisions whether you live in a multi-million dollar mansion or if you live in a cardboard box on the street. Like you can, you can be a virtuous person no matter what circumstance you're in. And in that way, it kind of reframes our definition of success, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that's quite striking in Stoic ethics in particular, but you can translate it into thinking about life more generally, is a focus on process rather than outcome. Mm, so yeah. in Stoic ethics, it's all about you, you do the virtuous action for the sake of it being a virtuous action and you don't mm. worry about the outcome quite so much. But you can think about that in life in, life in general. You know, if you really enjoy what you do, then you can take satisfaction from simply doing it, regardless of whether you become a big success or not. Yeah. Right? So if someone really wants to be a musician, they should just make music, right? Yeah. Now, whether they hit the big time or not is accidental. If they, if they genuinely enjoy being a musician, mm. then that's a successful life either way. Yeah. And the more they enjoy it and the more they get out of it, you know, the probably more likely they are going to you know, do well. But, mm. but that's, a, that's a secondary secondary outcome and could, could we keep on talking about that because this is something i've been really interested in lately is this idea of uh aligning with nature and also aligning with your nature as a human being you know move towards those things that interest you that that really captivate you 
And, you know, I had this exact conversation with Kai Whiting. I said, you know, why wouldn't you want to study something that you're genuinely interested in that you love to do? Because when you genuinely are interested in something, you're going to put so much more effort into it. You're going to learn quicker. You're going to learn better just by virtue of the fact that you're genuinely interested. Right. Um, so, you know, one thing that has happened in our modern society is you see people choosing what they're going to study at university, not based on what they're genuinely interested in, but a lot of times just based on what career path is going to bring them that success lifestyle that we're taught is, you know, the ultimate success. So can you talk to, to us a little bit about like what the Stoics said in regards to aligning with like your true nature as a human being and as an individual? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And and those sorts of concerns you just mentioned are ones that I deal with at work all the time, right? So mm. I'm teaching philosophy students. Yeah. What's the outcome of this? I mean, we have these discussions at open days all the time. Should I study law? Should I study yeah. philosophy? I really want to study philosophy. And it's like, well, you know, you can study law if you want, but if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to do well. Yeah. You'll just be a, a mediocre law graduate who won't look very good in the law job market. Yeah. Why don't you come and study philosophy and actually really ace it? So yeah, yeah, yeah. those debates and but learn I mean, how to live a good life in the in 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 the same time as well, right? It's yeah, like exactly. that's what philosophy yeah. is for. Yeah, and and enjoy yourself for three years rather than do mm. something. Anyway, that's a that's a separate issue. <laughs> but in terms of your question, right about um, nature, I think that's that's really interesting. And um, Cicero talks about this. So there's a some technical thing called the, the the four personae theory and he talks about living according to to, to nature in different senses and mm. he highlights the fact that living according to nature ought to involve um not just external nature not just our generic human nature that we all share but also um what's particular and peculiar to us right we mm. all have that unique individual nature right some of us are extroverts some of us are introverts some of us are are destined to be sportsmen others might be more creative and there's a sense in which we need we need to reach a point where we've got the relevant self-knowledge just to kind of have worked out who we are and what's mm. right and comfortable for us as individuals and that's not really an ethical question at all right that's just a question of gaining some self-knowledge and getting a sense of you know what would be the most comfortable fit for us in the world Mm. And that's difficult, right? I mean, everyone yeah. struggles with that. <laughs> yeah. How, how would you, how would you even begin to get somebody to figure that out? Right. It's like, you know, I, I know that personally I deal with this when I, when I coach people and, you know, the first thing that I say to them is like, we need to understand where you are right now. And we need to understand the person who, you know, you could and should be if you moved towards those things that, you know, you're interested in, if you move towards the things that you know would be valuable for you and you're not always going to get it right. Like nobody ever gets like a perfect vision of this is exactly what I want to be. And then they just ace it. Right. But how do you move people closer towards understanding their true nature and understanding their, their nature in terms of their place in their community in the world? Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of stoic ideas could be useful here. If we think about what the stoics say about emotions so gaining some kind of sort of um, distance from your emotions so that you can observe them can be very, mm. very helpful. So, for instance, if someone finds themselves in a situation that actually makes them feel deeply uncomfortable and stressed mm. because it's not the right one for them. 
And to be able to observe that in themselves and say, okay, something's not right here. Something about this situation is making me feel uncomfortable. And there's a sense in which the stoic account of emotions as the product of implicit value judgments helps to give a framework to think about what's going on there, right? Mm. I'm implicitly making the value judgment that this situation's bad for me for whatever reason. And that's why I'm feeling uncomfortable and stressed at this moment. So, yeah. so um, you can actually learn quite a lot from doing the wrong thing, right? You, mm. can, you, know, you might go down a certain path and if you can be sensitive to, to, the, to the way in which you respond to it emotionally, that can teach you something about whether that's the right place for you or not. Mm. Is that, is that almost some kind of, do they ever talk about like the conscience? Do, do they ever talk? Cause I know that, that Socrates had some sort of relationship with his conscience, right? Like he, he would listen to it when it told him you shouldn't do this. And so he wouldn't do it. Right. Like that was the thing that he thought set him apart. Um, did the Stoics talk about that at all? And did they see that as some sort of part of our nature that could tell us where we should go? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I don't. I don't think it's a particularly strong a strong feature, to be honest. Mm, yeah. Um, um, I mean, in Epictetus, for instance, there's a just that strong focus on attending to your judgments. Yeah. Um, but in order to be able to do that, you've got to be able to get that um, <clears throat> that distance from them, so that you start mm-hmm. to become aware of the judgments that you're making, rather yeah. than them all just happening, you know, automatically without without. Um, really being aware of how quickly you're judging these different situations. Yeah. Yeah. So the cognitive distancing looks like it's really important. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Just being able to step outside. And I, I, honestly, like lately I've been really thinking about that because I seriously think that one of the most important aspects of stoicism, and you see this all the way up to even, you know, uh, Marcus Aurelius talking about the view from above is this idea of, stepping outside of your own mind essentially and and putting yourself in a different perspective which if you think about it is one of our true virtues as human beings like our ability to step outside of our own experience and maybe try to see somebody else's experience or you know perspective from a different angle um how how would you encourage people to do that like how did what did the stoics say about how we are able to even cultivate that skill of stepping outside and looking at the world from a different perspective, from a different angle. Yeah. I mean, that's, we don't hear so much about that amongst the kind of earlier Stoics, but um, as you say, it's really strong in Marcus Aurelius. Mm. Um, He obviously takes that um, uh, very seriously as a, as a useful technique. And you see it in some other bits and pieces of later ancient philosophy. So, uh, um, Cicero talks about this and a number of other Platonists talk about this mm. someone like um, Pierre Hadot for instance will talk about that theme across a number of different philosophical schools yeah. I mean, and obviously you can't really do it right we can't really mm. uh, completely escape our first person subjective perspective so it's an imaginative exercise but um, yeah. I mean I agree with you I think it's a really um, useful one um, mm. just to kind of s- s- see what our lives would look like um, from outside and see that we're in fact not the center of the world yeah. in the way in which we all think we are so much of the time, right? You yeah. Know, just another person going through the same sorts of motions as everyone else, struggling with the same sorts of problems as everyone else. Yeah. Um, and in one sense that can say, seem a bit deflating, right? You know, 
oh no, I'm not the center of the world after all. I'm just like everyone else. How terrible. But on the other hand, it can be very liberating. You know, all of these difficulties and troubles that I might be going through at the moment are exactly the same as, as, as troubles that countless other people are going through. I'm not suffering in an exceptional way Mm. right now. I'm just going through all the stuff that everyone goes through because it's just part of life. Yeah. So gaining that distance can enable us to see that too, I think. I think, I think so as well. And I, I, that idea of the view from above and, and essentially viewing the world from, uh, from that perspective, from the stars, essentially, I've been thinking about that lately. And it's like the further away you move from the world, like imagine yourself just looking down on the world and every step back that you take, you realize that a little bit more, you're not running the show, right? Like you really, like, as you say, you're not the center of the universe. And the farther back you go, the more you realize this and the more you realize that, wow, like that is a tiny little speck of dust on a tiny little blue dot in the middle of a giant universe or whatever. And it's, and it's just, when you realize that it can almost, it can almost be frightening to you because it's like, wow, I don't control anything. And this is completely out of, out of my control. But then, but then you think my lived experience is extremely real to me, right? Like, like that, what we're experiencing here is extremely real. And so you kind of have to be like, well, well, that's actually kind of beautiful. The fact that I am completely out of control, I'm only a tiny speck of dust on this planet, but I am experiencing something genuinely real, uh, at least in my mind. Uh, so really the only, cho- the only choice that I have is to dance through life and enjoy it and, and to live to the best of my abilities and try to be virtuous. And, and, and if I do that, then at least it's justified that I didn't control anything really. Right. Um, but can you, can you kind of speak to that, that divide between the things that we can control in our lived experience? Because it seems like there's the potential for people to look at this as a way to go down kind of a nihilistic path of, wow, like nothing's in my control. What's the point, right? Like how did the Stoics justify that? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I think again, gaining that, gaining that perspective of distance, that view from above, you look down and, 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 and realize how trivial and unimportant much of, of your own life is, right? You know, in 200 years time, we'll all be dead. We'll all be forgotten. It will all seem as if it was pointless. Mm. It didn't matter. None of it matters. And if you're in a bad frame of mind, being told none of this matters can sound really depressing, right? Yeah. But it can also, I think, sound really liberating, right? None of it matters, right? Mm for someone who's really stressed over all sorts of trivial details and they everything is getting on top of them and it all feels too much you can just say look none of this actually matters mm. all of these things that are eating you up inside and that are stopping you just enjoying the the bare experience of being alive none of it matters so mm. just in go out do what you can do enjoy yourself um because all these trivialities that, that, that take up so much emotional energy, they don't count for a thing. Mm. They'll all be forgotten. And I think that, so I, I think the, I think you can kind of turn, turn the nihilism into something quite liberating and, yeah. um, and positive. But my, my question would be, how do you, or how did the Stoics or how do you yourself uh, draw the line between what matters and what doesn't? Cause you know, if, mm. if nothing really matters, I mean, there's a lot of things that you could justify doing if, if nothing matters. Right. 
So how do how do we how do we say okay yeah look no, nothing matters how the way I've put it in the past is like it's a beautiful philosophy because it says yeah like okay there's no meaning however you create the meaning right like you can bring your own lived experience into it and say this is my purpose and this is like what I'm going to achieve but how do you, how do you draw that line there how do you become a a valuable member of your family society country world citizen of the world and not just become somebody who does whatever they want because nothing matters. Sure, absolutely. So nothing matters except how I behave, mm. right? That's going to be the stoic, the, the stoic line, I guess, right? Yeah. Nothing matters except how I behave at this particular moment. Um, the outcomes don't matter. They're out of my control. Um, they'll soon be forgotten anyway. But how I behave right now towards other people, um, that matters. That's the mm. one thing that I do have control over. And um, the sorts of virtues that the Stoic pick, at, pick out, things like justice, for instance, often um, social-facing virtues. It's about how we behave with other people, treating other people well. Why does that matter? Um, because we're social beings. Mm. That's who we are. Um, we're born into communities. We're born into families. Um, we don't have a choice about that. The kind of myth of sort of Western isolated individualism is just a myth, right? Mm. Created so that we'll all compete with each other in the marketplace. But that's not how we're born. We're born into communities. We're born completely helpless and useless and thoroughly dependent on other people. Yeah. Um, that's our natural state, right? So to be good versions of ourselves as human beings is to know how to act well within those communities that we're necessarily parts of. Mm. And so that's a reason why the social virtues for the Stoics, I think, become important. Um, yeah. And that's about being a good, just being a good human being, mm. you know, in a, in a kind of a non-moral sense of the word good, right? You know, yeah. a, 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 a human being that functions well um, is one that's going to function well within a social community. And that's going to involve behaving well towards other people. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I, I think that's a, that's a really reasonable uh, kind of uh, overview of the way that the Stoics looked at it. And I think, I think it really speaks to this idea as well of, of being in the crowd, but not of the crowd. Like understand that you have a need as a human being to surround yourself with people because you're a social creature. Like if a sage doesn't, need friends but he still wants friends right and so yeah. be within your community but you don't necessarily have to uh want everything that they want you don't have to go after the things that they go after or speak how they speak you just need to be there as a part of the community and hopefully your presence if you're a good person will be valuable to the community right yeah absolutely and another virtue that marcus aurelius stresses a lot as well is um toleration um, towards mm. other people um, and yeah. toleration towards people who are struggling and aren't doing as well. Um, so one of my favorite passages in um, the meditations is uh, um, the book two, chapter one, the opening passage um, after he's paid his respects in book one, where he says, you know, when you wake up in the morning, remember that you're going to meet all sorts of people who are stroppy and aggressive and unpleasant. Um, so prepare yourself for that fact. But then yeah. he adds a further thought that's really important. He says, and also remind yourself that it's not their fault. None of these people have chosen to be like that. 
Mm. It's because they're in ignorance, because something's going wrong, because they're struggling or whatever it might be. But no one chooses to be unpleasant in that way. It's because they're struggling. So show some compassion too. And I think that was really... And that second part, I think, is just as important as the first part. It's not just about... Yeah. 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 Show compassion and, and just be the best person that you can be. And, and hopefully just by you being the best that you can be and being compassionate and caring, uh, that might even make their life a little bit easier. Right. And um, I have to say, there's no better sign that we're talking to a British stoic than the fact that you just used the word stroppy, which was uh, the, the <laughs> highlight of the interview so far for me. That was beautiful. Um, but I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about uh, a quote that I've got here from you from one of your lectures, uh, which might be my favourite quote uh, from anyone talking about stoicism. You said stoicism is a deeply paradoxical, if not schizophrenic, philosophy, and <laughs> and I was very intrigued. Could you talk to us about that? What 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 do you mean by stoicism is a, a very paradoxical uh, philosophy? What did I say after that quote? Remind me of the context. Oh, gosh. I can't necessarily remember the exact context, but I know that you were talking about um, how, you know, we have these ideas in stoicism of, uh, yeah, you can control, like, like nothing is in your control, but at the same time, you can control this one little thing. So it's kind of like exactly what we're talking about there, where it's, it, it's like, yeah, there's a lot outside of your control, so nothing means anything, but at the same time, there's a paradox because, hey, you control this in your head. And I don't know if I just yeah. explained exactly what you were talking about, so we don't even need to answer the question, but I, I was hoping sure. you'd be able to kind of talk about that, those philosophical paradoxes that we see within stoicism. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think probably what I was referring to then was this idea that on the one hand, we have control of almost nothing, right, as mm. you say, um, you know, we don't even have control of our of of the content of our own minds. We don't control the um, experiences that we receive. Um, the only thing we control, Epictetus claimed, was the the judgments that we make about things. Mm. That very very small part, as you just said. Um, at the same time, that very very small part um, is um, the basis for absolutely everything that matters in our lives. So. Yeah. We have complete control. We have control over almost nothing. Mm. But at the same time, we have control over everything that matters to us. We have control about how we act. Yeah. We have control over our happiness, our well-being. Um, and, and that's, that's a kind of slightly you know, strange paradox. You, you see this in, in Epictetus, I think, in particular. Right? You're, 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 you're finite, small, impotent. Uh, you don't control a thing. At the same time, everything that matters is in your power. Yeah, yeah. Does does that kind of does that kind of go back to the the view that they had of the cosmos uh, of because uh, because I mean you look at this is something that I've been really wrestling with lately you know there's there's a lot of uh, kind of ancient philosophies that would teach that you like you are essentially obviously I'm trying to I'm trying to formulate this correctly. The Stoics teach that we are not separate from nature, right? We are an active player in nature. We, and therefore we are nature. Like everything about you and me right now is a process of nature creating us over time. Um, and in that way, it's almost, it, it almost goes back to that sort of idea that's taught in the Bible. It's like we are created in the image of God, right? Like, so we, 
we are the God because we are nature and we are everything, right? Like, and, and I'm not trying to call myself a God here. I hope that's not coming off, <laughs> but, but is, is that, do you see, is there any connection there between like Stoicism and other ancient philosophies that taught this, that just the fact that you, you in your mind do control everything, but you control nothing makes you almost, uh, almost like the world looking at itself. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's that ancient idea of like, we, we are essentially nature's way of viewing itself. Is, is there any, is there any validity in that sort of line of thinking, uh, in terms of what the Stoics taught? Um, and you can just yeah, shut me down and say, absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, I'm, I'm I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's a tricky one. So, I mean, so as you'll know, so the, the Stoics will say that our human souls are fragments of the divine soul that, that, mm. that permeates all of nature. So in that sense, we're kind of a fragment of this, this, this divinity they're playing. Yeah. Um, does that mean that our conscious minds are fragments of a single divine conscious mind? And that was, yeah. I think probably not. Yeah. Um, because the early Stoics have discussions. So just as they'll have discussions about where's the ruling part of the soul in the human body. Some yeah. think it's in the heart. Some think it's in the brain. Um, and obviously we all would say now it's in the brain. Um, mm. They're having those, those debates, but they're also having debates. Where's the ruling part of the divine soul. Mm. And um, they, they tend to locate that in the stars, in the heavens. Yeah. Right. And they have debates about this. So they don't think that the divine conscious mind is distributed across all of our individual conscious minds. Mm. I think that's got a physical location somewhere else. Yeah. So, um, so I don't think they think that our, our minds are, are, are part of some kind of super consciousness. Mm. Um, I don't think that they, they held that, that view. Um, yeah. But in terms of the relationship between humans and some kind of divine entity, I mean, I think, it's rationality here that's the key, right? So, mm. I mean, right across ancient thought, it's, it's rationality that marks humans out from the rest of nature. And that's the one thing that they share in common with the gods, if, if you believe you know, yeah. um, in some set of gods. And, it, and in many ways, it's, it's kind of a matter of definitions, right? It's like, you know, I wasn't necessarily speaking about an individual god, like that we are all like one individual god. I was, I was more meaning like, uh, you know, if you look at it purely just by the process of nature, and the fact that we are exactly a process and a replica of everything that happens in nature. Um, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, we, we're not separate at all. And so what does that make us? It's, 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 it's kind of, um, and, and I think that the, the align with nature side of stoicism is probably one of the, you know, now that I'm getting deeper into it and trying to understand it, it's one of the most beautiful worldviews that I've ever experienced. Uh, and, and it allows you to, to really understand that you're an active player in this whole scheme of nature. Uh, and also you're being actively played by this whole scheme of nature, right? It's like, and if you think you're in charge, then you're absolutely wrong. Um, now I, I wanted to also touch on one other thing that you mentioned in one of your lectures, which you said that Stoics never actually spoke about emotions. And that's another matter of definitions, right? They, they never spoke about the, the um, uh, emotions in the sense that we speak about emotions today. And I'd really appreciate it if you could kind of elaborate on that, because I think that that was a real revelation to me 
um, to, to understand that. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be really helpful for our, our listeners as well. Yeah, sure. So really, I mean, it was a kind of a, a point of translation, right? We, mm. we talk about emotions in, uh, uh, in modern English and we lump all sorts of things under that label. Um, and it's quite a broad, ill-defined kind of concept. What is an emotion, right? Mm. It's something going on in your head that's not rational. I mean, I don't know. I genuinely don't know how to define what an emotion is yeah. um, in, the, in, the, in the kind of everyday colloquial English sense of the word. But when the Stoics are talking about what we often translate as emotions, when they talk about pathé, they're using it in a very technical sense. Um, it's very, very precise, and they know exactly what they're referring to. And I think it's much, much narrower than what we would think of as emotions in that mm. loose English sense of the word. Mm. So, um, obviously, the emotions that they're concerned about are um, what we might call negative emotions. They also think there are positive emotions, which are good. Um, so they're not rejecting all emotion. That's kind of one thing we'd want to say. Um, and the other thing is they have this account of um, um, first movements, right? which they don't think count as emotions, but they include all sorts of things that we might think of as emotional responses, right? So um, sort of fight or flight, um, uh, fear responses would count as first movements. Um, Seneca, in his book on anger, when he talks about um, emotions there, he'll say that crying isn't an emotion in mm. the stoic sense of the word, right? If yeah. you're suddenly taken aback by something and you burst into tears, that's not being emotional. That's just a kind of a reflexive response. Yeah. Um, so a real emotion in the Stoic sense, uh, a pathé, is um, something that is the product of a value judgment and something mm. that hangs around for a long time. So, for instance, someone who um, uh, uh, loses a relative and goes through a process of grief I mean, Seneca would say that there's a sense in which that's just a natural process. Mm. That's not necessarily an emotion in the stoic sense of the word. I mean, mm. it's just natural and normal and proper to be affected by that, to cry, to have those immediate responses. Yeah. Um, I mean, he said it, like it would be inhuman if you didn't feel it, right? It's like, absolutely. like it, it just yeah. wouldn't be natural. Yeah. But the person who two or three years later is still convinced that what happened was an absolute travesty um, and is in a kind of pathological state of grief. Mm. Uh, the sort that a, that a, that a modern um, you know, psychotherapist would say, this is something unhealthy. That's the sort of thing that the Stoics have got in mind when they talk about pathé, something that becomes debilitating, something that's based on a mistaken judgment. Mm. Um, so it's very, very specific. It's much, much narrower than what we, what, when we think about emotions. So one way around this would be to translate their word pathé as passion. Yeah. And in the early modern period, so in the 17th century, it was often translated as passion. And I think for a while people thought that that sounded a bit antiquated. Um, so people use emotion instead, but that's not ideal either. So it, I think really it's just being sensitive to the fact that, that our English words don't necessarily capture the, the ancient ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. The no, I think, I think that's really, really helpful what you explained there. Cause even now that I'm listening to you, it's like the word emotion encapsulates so many things in our life. <laughs> like, 
like it's it's almost impossible to um think of it clearly because there's just so many avenues that you could go down and say that's emotion that's emotion that's emotional that's emo yeah and it's yeah. it's um it's really helpful to think of it in a way that you have your natural emotional systems that are inbuilt into you as a human being and you probably need them you or even if you don't need them you needed them a million years ago and and they're left over right so it's just going to happen um, and so maybe you get scared and you jump, but then the Stoics would say, like you're talking about, okay, you've jumped, uh, you've, you've come down from your immediate reaction to what's happened. Uh, and now you can interpret what's happened. Right. And how, how would you, how would you say that people should go about, uh, practicing the art of correct interpretation or, you know, create correct view of, of those initial emotions. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to something we talked about earlier on, which is getting that kind of cognitive distance. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I think the thought is you have that first reaction. And then if you let that first reaction um, shape your judgment, so then it becomes something um, firmer or more ingrained and you let that happen too quickly, then you'll have the kind of full-blown emotion. But if you mm -hmm. can get that distance, if you can acknowledge that, 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 it's just, it, that that's just an immediate reaction and you can create that space for yourself to try and make a considered judgment, mm. um, then I think that's the kind of, that would be the kind of technique that they, that they have in mind. So just acknowledging that, that these are immediate, I mean, Seneca describes them as almost sort of physiological reactions, right? Mm. Your body does this, right? Uh, you blush when you're embarrassed, you blink if you, um, if you think that, you know, um, uh, some threat's coming towards you, uh, or you cower if you hear a loud noise. Um, these are just physiological responses that you can't help, right? It's, you have to do mm. quite a lot of training to, to, to really turn yourself into the block of stone that, that you know, people think a stoic is like. That's actually quite hard yeah. to do. And, yeah. and of course, they're not suggesting that we do that at all. Um, um, but just realizing that they are what they are. They're just these physiological responses. Mm. Uh, and then you can take time to think, well, you know, is something bad really happening? Um, or is it actually, you know, there's no reason to, to, to um, uh, make a firm judgment that, that something terrible is really happening right now? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, just going back to that cognitive distancing and practicing that. Uh, and and uh, who, who was I talking to? recently yeah matthew uh, matthew sharp from deakin university here in australia um spoke to him this morning and he said that he teaches his students that uh stoicism can allow you to have an extra second of thinking before you react right so it's like it's like that tiny little advantage that you have over other people in terms of your ability to to think correctly and and, and I think a lot of times uh, for me, it comes down to the fact that you need to understand that this is not something that's going to happen immediately. A lot of people jump into it and they say, Oh, this is going to be my quick fix. It's not, it's like a, you know, it's a lifetime pursuit, right? This, uh, this pursuit of philosophy, this pursuit of uh, virtue and, and pursuit of uh, correct interpretation. And it's going to take time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's striking in all of the Roman Stoics is the stress they place on habituation and mm. training. And they, they, they all emphasize this in different ways. But um, 
but it's a it's a it's a continual process of training in mm. order to embed these habits and 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 um be able to automatically do that kind of cognitive distancing for instance um, yeah automatically open up these gaps so that you've got space to test your judgments um mm. hence the need for sort of daily reminders and all of that sort of thing and uh and then, of course, these days, of course, people will want to produce all sorts of, you know, stoic apps on their phones to give them the daily yeah. reminders and, and all of that kind of stuff, which is a kind you know, it's a good sort of, you know, I mean, I try to avoid avoid technology as much as I can mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in many ways. But um, I can see why that's a really good way to put something to use in order to to do precisely what the, the ancient stoics were talking about. Right. Mm. To have those constant um uh, reminders of um what you need to take into account yeah yeah definitely you know, just having that constant reminder there that you need to build these habits and and going back to the ancient stoics i think that that what's really interesting about all of these people who we read from marx rice epictetus seneca is these are fully grown men right and yet they are still talking every single day about how to live a good life and that speaks to the stoic uh, view of the world, which is that philosophy is a lifelong pursuit. And it seems like, man, I, I can think of so many people where it's almost as if whatever their favorite year of their life was, they decided this is exactly how I'm going to be for the rest of my life now and nothing's going to change. And, you know, their, their clothing, the, the way they think, uh, their opinions of things, and they just stick with it. And it's, it's inspiring to read from philosophers because these are people who it's a lifelong pursuit. And, and, and even Seneca, I think I I seem to remember a quote from Seneca where he was talking about, you know, at, at, even at your dying breath, you know, you should be conquering a new, new challenge, you know, like you should, you should be right to the very end trying to become a virtuous person is is that kind of the way you see your philosophy as well and your study of stoicism um yeah i mean certainly it's a it's a continual practice it's not as if you kind of reach a certain point you say okay i've nailed this i can just forget Mm. about it it'll take care of itself far from it and uh and every so often i'll 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 I might have a period of time where I'm not particularly looking at stoic things at all and I'm doing other things and I come back to it and it's like, well, this is a breath of fresh air. I'd almost forgotten yeah, this. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, and people might think, well, you know, how could you forget this? You've written books on it and all the rest mm. of it. But in, unless you're getting those constant reminders, mm. it's very easy. It's easy to, to forget. It's so yeah. easy to forget. And then all of a sudden one day you snap and you get angry at somebody and you're like, oh gosh, I haven't thought about that in quite a long time. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. John, I wanted to ask you because you're you're obviously actively involved in the Stoic community and and you teach people every day about philosophy. Like what Stoicism is a philosophy that changes over time, and with every new age comes new people teaching it, new people growing the philosophy. Is there anything that you think we need to uh, bring into the umbrella of Stoicism uh, in in our modern age today, or even do you think that we need to break up the term stoicism and just focus on the best of each philosophy um yeah that's a that's a good question i mean i do think that other philosophies particularly ancient philosophies have useful things that they can teach us too yeah so um 
so last year I wrote this short book called Lessons in Stoicism that um, people may have seen um, and it'll come out this year in the United States um, uh, under a different title it'll be called The Pocket Stoic oh, cool. um, and I've just written a similar um, companion book on Epicureanism mm. um, which should come out next year which um, picks up on some of the key ideas you see in Epicureanism and often Epicureanism is presented as the kind of polar opposite of Stoicism. Um, and in some respects it is, but I think there's also a fair amount of common ground there. And mm. um, I think that um, we can certainly take ideas from, from, um, from there too. Um, I mean, if someone had to push me and say, you know, um, you know where, are your, where are your loyalties? I would say I'm certainly much more of a Stoic than an Epicurean, but I think we can yeah. certainly learn from Epicureanism. Um, yeah. And also um, uh, ancient scepticism, Peronian scepticism. I think there's also some, there's a, a therapeutic strand within that. Um, um, Sectus Empiricus, his book, The Outlines of Pyrrhonism, um, or The Outlines of Scepticism, it's sometimes translated. And that has some really interesting ideas too. The idea that it's by being dogmatically tied to certain beliefs that we generate mm. all sorts of difficulties and frustrations for ourselves. And if we just suspend judgment and don't have strong dogmatic views, that can actually um, make life a lot easier. Mm. Um, which I think, again, is an interesting idea that could be combined with others. So yeah. I, think, I think that's actually really important, especially for today when so many people are just in the grips of their own ideology and they just like, that's what I think and nothing could prove me wrong. Like there needs to be a really healthy skepticism I've even, you know, since restarting this podcast, I've come to the understanding that I need to be very careful with the way that I present this podcast, that it's not just a place where I'm saying stoicism is the only way and it's the best philosophy and, and it's the only way to live a good life. I want this to be a place where I encourage people to also look at, okay, what, what might be incorrect about stoicism? How did they think that maybe we could change in our modern time or, what is our modern understanding allowing us to see that they might not have seen? And, and I think it's really important to kind of, as we step outside of our own mind, also step outside of your own tightly held beliefs, right? Absolutely. I think there are a couple of points I'd want to, to add to that. One is simply to stress, this is a philosophy, not a religion, right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's a, it's a set, there are a set of beliefs, but there are arguments for those beliefs. And if you, people want to take this up then they need to have a look at the arguments and see that they find them convincing right exactly and we ought not to be taking any of this on authority so mm. read it interrogate it come to your own views about it um that's really really important yeah and connected to that another thing that i would stress as someone who works on ancient stoicism is that there's lots of internal disagreement amongst the ancient Stoics. Mm. Um, they, they weren't all singing from a single hymn sheet um, at all. I mean, the Epicureans had this reputation that Epicurus was the grand master and everyone simply followed him obediently. Whether that's a fair image is another matter. But the Stoics were constantly arguing with one another. Um, there are fig figures who said, well, I don't believe in... in um, eternal um, recurrence and periodic conflagration. I'm going to reject that. I don't yeah. think nature is, is, a, is a divine animal. I'm going to reject that. 
Um, mm. They were all thinking for themselves and arguing amongst one another in a, in a, I think, a very positive and healthy way. So yeah. when we see modern Stoics getting into these arguments, you know, about um, different points, I think that's kind of very much in the spirit of mm. the original tradition. It's a group of people all thinking for themselves, working it through for themselves, and um, rejecting bits they just don't find plausible, but still feeling confident to be able to take away other material that they they do find plausible and and do think can be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. I'm really glad that you made those points. And I want to echo something that you said there. It's, it's not a religion. You can test it. You know, I've had, I've had many people email me and they use the word believe, right? And they say, you know, I really believe in stoicism. And I, the first thing I say to them is, listen, you don't have to believe in this. You just have to test it, right? You just have to put the principles to work in your life if they work it's true you know like you don't have to believe anything you just have to test it you need to look at as you said the rational arguments for why it is the case and you'll soon see the value of the philosophy uh, and if it actually works um john this has been such a such an awesome discussion i'm really grateful that you came on the show and i want to thank you again i've just got one question for you before we go um you know as you said at the start you you work at uh, royal holloway university uh, I made the mistake of calling that uh, Royal Hallows. Some, some, I, I can't remember what I said, but it was uh, unbelievable. But I've been looking at this university and it is possibly the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And like the, the building is incredible and, and like such an incredible place to work. Was, was it always, I'd love to know, was it always your, uh, your desire going back to your natural inclinations how early did you know that you wanted to be a philosopher and teach philosophy at university? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think I, I, I caught the bug when I was an undergraduate student. Mm. So um, I'd had a, I, I'd had a wide range of, 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 of different interests when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, I was quite good at things like maths and physics when I was at school I was very numerical. Um, I wasn't a great reader or writer. I didn't spend a lot of time reading books when I was a kid in the way that, that some children do. Um, so I read quite a lot of, sort of popular science books. I was interested in kind of cosmology and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so those sorts of big questions, but, but, but not in a particularly philosophical way. And then um, it was really when I got to university and I discovered the academic subject of philosophy but also discovered university life. You know, this was a place where there were people that were just spending all, all their time thinking about these things and, you know, and vast libraries with all the books you could ever want where you could really delve into a subject. And I think that was the point where I thought, yeah, this is, this is the environment for me. Um, mm. Let's see how long I can get away with um, 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 doing this before I'm thrown back into the nasty, horrible <laughs> real world. And I've been incredibly fortunate that that moment's never happened and I've managed to kind of find yeah. a way to keep going all the way through. And I'm fully conscious of how difficult that is. Um, so I'm very grateful that I've been able to continue doing this since 1991 when I first went to a philosophy mm -hmm. department and I've, I've not really left since. Well, I, I think um, for anyone who's just listened to this podcast, to say that you're getting away with anything is definitely the wrong way to frame the situation. I think, uh, I think you're absolutely thriving. And I think that this, this conversation has just been so beautiful. I'm really grateful to you uh, sharing your knowledge and 
um, the open invitation. You're always welcome on the show and we'd, we'd always love to hear from you. So thanks so much for coming on, John. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been really good to talk to you. Yeah. And there you have it, my interview with John Sellers. Now, uh, make sure you head to the links in the show notes, grab his books, reach out to him, let him know how much you appreciated him coming on the show. And uh, look, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.